0: you know getting to 10 million was a huge goal for me and i felt like people, investors would say when you get to 10 million you're going to have all these people calling you that you know don't want to take the risk when you're only doing 4 or 5 million and that was true and then the people that help you get to 10 million are going to be different from the ones that get you to 25 million the people that get you to 25 million are going to be different from the people that get you to 50 million and if they can get you to 50 million they can probably help you get to 100 million
1: If you think you can get cheese from plants, you're right. Case in point, Miyoko Shinner, the tenacious, award-winning vegan celebrity chef, cookbook author, and Animal Sanctuary founder behind the dairy-free cheese brand Miyoko's Creamery. Her passion for her craft and mission is unrivaled as a leading advocate for the right of vegan food products to use traditional meat and dairy terms on their labels. Coming up? Miyoko takes us through her journey as an entrepreneur and food creator, which involved a lot of trial and error, with many projects not flourishing in the way she'd wanted to until the booming success of Miyoko's Creamery, now in over 20,000 stores. And Miyoko shares how she developed the entrepreneurial mindset very young, without even realizing that's what was happening. How bringing cheese to Twitter executives ultimately resulted in a meaningful investment why she returned to research and development and how she found someone else to run the show who has an aligned vision and a look at the vision of helping the world become a more sustainable and compassionate place for all living beings. Miyoko, I am so excited to be here with you today to learn all about your entrepreneurista journey because from the little that I already know, you have quite an incredible story. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm delighted to be here. So Miyoko's Creamery is not your first business. So I would love to hear more about your entrepreneurista journey and how you really got the bug.
0: Sure. You know, I think a lot of people think, you know, they go, where did she come from? She just came out of nowhere and she's an overnight success. And I always tell people I'm an overnight success, 35 years in the making. So I think if I started my first business, probably when I was about uh, eight years old and published my first newspaper and started selling it around my neighborhood, but really in truth, my first business started when I was in my mid twenties, I was living in Japan at the time and I just gone vegan. And I suddenly felt like I can't eat all these things that I love. I loved really, really rich, wonderful sort of European style foods, whether it was French or Italian. And I love baking. I love delicious, rich, beautiful cakes, torts, not not sugary cupcakes, but like the real thing that you get in Vienna or a Viennese pastry or some sort of French tort. And so I just decided I'm going to start experimenting and uh, started coming up with these amazing desserts at a time when when really no one understood why would you make a vegan cake? It just didn't seem to make any sense to anyone. But I started a little bakery in the middle of nowhere in Tokyo. I mean, I were outside of Tokyo. It took about two hours for me to get there from my house and I would bake all day. I'd make these pound cakes and then I would deliver them by subway all over Tokyo. And so that was sort of how I got started. And then it just sort of morphed from there. I got involved in doing some consulting work for a variety of restaurants that were trying to go plant-based in Tokyo, like juice bars. This was relatively a new thing, and there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of that going on. I was gonna open the first vegan restaurant there. I got involved with a guy that owned restaurants, and um, we started going down this path until it turned out I discovered that uh, he actually was part of the Japanese mafia, called the Yakuza, and, and oh things goodness. got very, very scary. And I was going to like have to sign my entire life over to him, you know, everything I ever did for, I mean, you just don't want to get involved with the mob. Seriously, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you don't want to be involved with the mob. My life got very ugly for a while where I was getting, you know, threats, people knocking on my door at 3am demanding things. And anyway, so I had to get out of, basically I got out of Dodge. I came back to the United States. I started a little bakery here that morphed into a restaurant. That morphed into a natural food company where I made meat substitutes in the mid 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, it was really all sort of a struggle. Like I couldn't make one thing work. And so I would morph it, I would reinvent it into another business. And then I would reinvent it into something else, each time learning a lot, taking things away from it that were both good and bad. Growing as an entrepreneur, wondering what the hell I was doing the entire time, gaining notoriety still pre internet, of course, and sort of being ahead of the curve in terms of the whole vegan movement. But, you know, getting product out there, gaining some recognition. But at the end of the day, for years, I hadn't been able to take a paycheck. It was a real struggle. Or if I did take a paycheck, it was really hand to mouth. It was month to month, like, can I pay my rent? You know, I think I was really concerned primarily with. How do I pay my employees and make sure they're employed? And that that was always a big thing to me. Eventually, I did sell the business in 2003, now and Zen, which was the alternative meat manufacturer. And I sold it for a very small amount of money. It's not like today's entrepreneurs that sell for, you know, 5X revenues and, and then they get to retire in the Caribbean for the rest of their life. I basically sold it just to get out of debt, to be able to pay back the loans that I had taken out at the very beginning. So I sort of took a break from food for a few years because I had been in food for something like 15, maybe almost 20 years, and obviously been able to support myself to some extent, but, but really not been able to, to get ahead. So I took a break from it for a while. Um, I did write books. In the meantime, I did teach cooking, but I decided I didn't want to start another business. In fact, I decided I would never, ever go into business ever again.
1: Oh, and that's not what happened, is it?
0: (laughs) No, that's not what happened.
1: (laughs) So I want to go back for a moment because you touched on so many different interesting things that happened throughout your journey to get to where you are today. And the first thing you mentioned is that you really started your entrepreneurial journey when you were selling newspapers at eight years old. And what I think is very interesting about that is myself and so many of the entrepreneurs that I've talked to over the past few years on the show have very similar stories where You were just trying to create some type of business as a child because you had this, I call it the entrepreneurial bug, and you learned so much as a child about how to figure out what's trending and how to sell things. So thinking back to that time when you were this eight-year-old little girl realizing that you should start selling newspapers, like, do you remember that time and some of the lessons you were learning back then, and have they applied to your businesses going forward? Sure. I want to point out the newspaper was a newspaper I was writing. Oh wow. Okay. So
0: so it wasn't newspapers, you know, I w- I didn't have a newspaper route. You know, I wasn't like tossing papers into people's yards. My parents had gotten me for a Christmas or birthday, I don't remember. This is before copy machines. So we're talking a long time ago because I'm probably old enough to be your grandma. So we're talking years and years and ye- decades ago when there were no copy machines and they got me this little Kind of like this printer. It was like this manual thing. This is before carbon paper. Also, they, that didn't even exist. You probably don't even know what carbon paper is, but there was a thing called carbon paper one time. But anyway, it was this tray that had this kind of like a stamp pad. Yeah, it was a little bit different, but basically, you type something up and you put it on there, and then you could make multiple copies. And so, I lived on a street called Oakdale Avenue, and I started the Oakdale Times, and you know, I went around and found out what was going on in the street. And then I started writing this little paper and people subscribed. It was pretty funny. But so I always had, you know, I was the kid that always had the lemonade stand, but, but a lot more, like I wasn't just going to do a lemonade stand. Like there was no point of differentiation, just having another stupid lemonade stand. So I was going to, you know, create some crafty thing or have some theme. I don't know. I, I, I always had some, some little angle that I would throw in. I think it's because I grew up in a house of entrepreneurs. And it that's just what I was like, going to ask about. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So you saw, it was your, I read an article that your mom yes. had started businesses. Was it a stuffed animal business? Is that what I read?
0: It was. So I grew up in Japan. I was the daughter of a single mom, which back in the 1950s was sort of a, a thing you didn't do. But my mother did. And we eventually moved to the United States and lived with my father and became a family. But, for the first six and a half, seven years of my life, I lived in Japan with my mother, who actually had met my father because she had started a business of her own. And they were both in the same industry. But she had a little stuffed animal business. It was a cottage industry. You know she had employees coming to our house every day. Our house was full of fabric and stuffing and stuffed animals. and so that's what she did. She was always a very, very creative person. I don't know wh- where she got that entrepreneurial bug. I don't know that she really wanted to go into business, but after World War II, people had to figure out how to survive. I was born only 12 years after the war ended. And so she was always talented. She was a great seamstress and she probably, apparently she there was some sort of contest. Some toy company was looking for designers. And so they advertised in the newspaper for submissions. And my mother submitted design in one. And so she got this gig making stuffed animals and selling it to this company. So that's how that started with her. And so, you know, I was born into that, that, that lifestyle. And, you know, I don't think I ever thought about it. Like when I was eight years old, I wasn't thinking, oh, my parents are entrepreneurs. I didn't even know what that meant. You right. know, I don't think I'd ever heard the word and I should go into business because I always saw them struggling. I mean, when mm. they, when we first moved to the United States my father and my mother started their own like novelty business basically starting from stuffed animals. I saw them struggle. I mean, we didn't have the resources that other friends had. I mean, we lived in this community that was a fairly wealthy one and we were always the family that didn't have whereas everyone else had, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I remember in the very very beginning I was probably like 9 or 10. I remember our refrigerator broke down back then they were called ice boxes, mm-hmm. and it really was an ice box. My father would go to the store and buy a 25 pound block of ice every day or every two days to put in there to keep things cold. I mean because we couldn't afford to get it fixed and then later on, their business took off, and you know we moved to the big house and, and things got a lot better. but for a long time, I mean we you know we lived without, so I saw them struggle, so I never thought. Oh I want to go into business when I grow up. I always thought my friend's father is a lawyer. I guess I should do that or or whatever. I was always thinking about something else, but it just permeates every cell of your body when you see your parents doing something even though it's it's completely unconscious. It just mm-hmm. sort of it gets into you. And so, you know, when I was in my 20s, I think what it is is you think about how do I find a solution for a problem and you're yeah. always thinking about that. So even if you're not going into business, you're not thinking of, how do I get a job? You're thinking of, how do I solve that problem?
1: Yep. What's next? How do, I, how do I make it happen?
0: Right. That's yeah. right. You just make it happen. You solve the problem and no one else is doing it. So you do it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So now we fast forward to starting Yoko. So in 2014, you when you first started this business now, you raised money, correct? When you first started? I did. I raised a million dollars. And what was that process like?
0: you know, it's really interesting. It was easy. I mean, the money this time around just fell into my lap. Unlike when I was had the businesses in the 1990s, I remember speaking in front of a group of investors, pitching my idea. And these investors came up to me and said, I've never heard a pitch so good. I wish I could speak as articulately and as passionately as you. And I didn't raise a single dollar. So I think the times were different. But this time around, I think what I did differently was that I had already built a fairly sizable cult following. I'd already built a reputation through the book that I had written, Artists and Vegan Cheese, which became sort of a cult classic when I published it in 2012. And so there were already lots and lots of people sort of anticipating the launch of my business. And when I started writing about it on social media, people were like, oh my God, did you know Miyoko's starting a vegan cheese company and this sort of thing. And this time around, it was so easy. First of all, I just mentioned it to some friends of mine saying, hey, I'm going to start this business," and five or six of them said, how much do you need? And I was like, you're kidding, right? Like you're not seriously gonna give me any money. And I almost didn't wanna take the money from them because I didn't wanna lose it. And I just felt like I didn't have a good track record. All the businesses I'd done, none of them had really taken off. And the few thousand dollars I'd gotten from family and friends before, I'd never been able to repay. And so I thought, I really don't wanna take your money. And I almost like didn't, to be honest. But then, you know, I met Seth Tibbett, who is the founder of Tofurky, former CEO of Tofurky, and he had some of the cheeses I was making. He said, "You know, this is this has legs," and I'll be your first investor. So, along with Seth and some other people from the industry, you know, one person told somebody else, who told somebody else, and then I got Evan Williams, a founder of Twitter, and that was from just taking cheese down to the Twitter office through a connection. I got sort of a, a connection to Biz Stone and. I took cheese to Biz Stone. And out of the blue, I got this email from Biz saying, wow, that was really great. Can you give some cheese to my partner, Evan Williams? So I, I did the same thing. And then Evan goes, sure, I'll give you whatever it was. And I got you know, a small amount of money from him, which later on turned into a lot more money because he started a VC fund called Obvious Ventures, along with some other investors. And, and they're the second leading investor in our our company now. So this time around was just really, really different. I, I literally raised a million dollars in six weeks.
1: Wow. And that's, I feel like that's almost unheard of. Would you say it the is, fact yeah. that you had, you know, built credibility in the industry, yes. built a social media following, you had the book, it just yes. had that instant credibility.
0: Absolutely. It had that instant credibility and the time was right. Yep. If I'd done it 10 years earlier or five years earlier, even, I don't think that I would have had that ability to do that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think that really any entrepreneur now who is raising money should focus and be sure that they've built a personal brand for themselves because investors do want to see that? Oh, oh my God. I
0: tell people all the time, um, you know, a lot of people come to me and say they're struggling raising money and I'll talk to them and it's like, what have you done up until now to really build that credibility brand? And they haven't done anything. What I found is the more you give, the more you get. So I had written the book, I had gone around the country giving free cooking demos, making tons and tons of cheese in my own kitchen, taking it to everything from potlucks to events to fundraisers, just giving, 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 giving all of this stuff. And at the time I was doing this, I wasn't really thinking about starting a business. I just wanted people to have great vegan cheese. And I just wanted you know, that idea to sort of catch on but it all paid off in the end because by then I'd already built some traction. I think that is so important, you know, so I'm always telling entrepreneurs that are trying to get some idea off the ground, just go wherever the people are, whether it's a, if you're in food, maybe it's a farmer's market, maybe it's a veg fest, just let people start having your stuff. Don't worry about, Oh my God, it's, I mean, that's part of your investment. That's your marketing dollars right there. You know, Mm -hmm. and we're, we live in this world now where it's all, viral marketing, you know, it's it's word of mouth. And that's how you build that credibility and that traction. And of course, you know, COVID, the pandemic has had a huge impact on people, you know, people's ability to connect in that fashion. Mm-hmm. So we're at a time now where we're going to have to think of other ways to reach people online to get people to try things virtually. So maybe, you know, you launch a platform and if you have a shelf-stable product and shipping isn't that expensive, you can work that out with FedEx or something, get lower rates, but maybe you give out free samples or severely discounted samples to get you know, the product in people's mouths and in their hands for them to try. I feel like you have to build that credibility if you're trying to build a
1: brand. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Coming up, transforming plants to create things we've never seen before and changing flavors of different kinds of plant-based milk to make it more like dairy. Yoko, can you share more about your business now and the vision and mission behind Yokos?
0: Sure, the vision behind Yokos, there's several trajectories in plant-based dairy. And there's an approach, I think we all, people that are involved in plant-based all want to take animals out of the food system and try to find a more sustainable, compassionate way to produce food. And also, you know, help with food justice as well. And plant-based foods are definitely the answer for that. There's sort of a I would say a three-prong approach. One is the very, very, very high-tech stuff, like the food tech stuff that people hear about, you know, the beyonds, the impossibles, the perfect days of the world that are culturing cells or replicating things in fermentation tanks, etc. There's that approach, and some of it won't actually materialize for a few years. There's another approach, which is the most common approach, which is the sort of the commodities approach, where you just take Things that I wouldn't call real food, like just oil and starch, you just combine them. You add some gums and flavorings and you make something that's sort of like cheese and doesn't have any nutritive value whatsoever, but it satisfies a need for a grilled cheese or something. So there's that approach. And then those two approaches sometimes are criticized, interestingly, by omnivores or flexitarians that say, well, one of them is frankenfoods. The other one is just like processed fake food. It's not real. And a lot of people that are non-vegans are looking for foods that if they want to turn to vegan food, they're looking for something they consider organic, made out of whole foods that are real, that have nutrition. And this is sometimes the biggest criticism you get of vegan foods is that they're either too processed or fake, mm-hmm. Franken foods or whatever. And I, you know, honestly, from being a vegan, I think there's a role for the first two types of food. And they're gonna play a bigger and bigger role in the future. But I think the third alternative is really understanding what's the nature of plants? How can they be transformed through natural processes such as fermentation or microbiology to exhibit properties that you know we haven't seen before? I mean, there's some of that going on in the fungus world where people are taking fungus, fungi, and turning it into meat. And we're going to actually see some products coming out from fungi that are very, very meaty um, in, over in the next year. So I think we're along the third route, which is taking whole foods, organic, taking plants, understanding their nature, learning their functionalities by doing a deep dive into the nature of plants, understanding it more, and then figuring out how can we transform them in a whole foods fashion, not by isolating proteins and things, but just utilizing the proteins that are in there intact in the plant and converting it into dairy-like products. So we have this... uh, new technology we're working on right now where we're making different milks out of all kinds of plants. And then we have very, very specific cultures that take those milks and change the flavor profile by converting the the starches and sugars into things that are more dairy-like, but they also add texture. So it's sort of like when you make yogurt, you take milk, and then you inoculate it with dairy cultures and the bacteria go crazy and it thickens up. So you can actually impact the texture, you can impact the flavor, and then you can make a a soft cheese out of it. And then we have a process where that cheese goes through a period of aging and water evaporates and the proteins and nutrients are concentrated. So you're starting out with a whole plant and concentrating the proteins in that. And so at the end of the day, it's really like making real cheese. You're taking milk. Instead of cow's milk, you're taking whatever, cashew milk or whatever. And through this this specialized process of fermentation and some microbiology and, and a few other things, we're concentrating the protein so that at the end of the day, after a couple of months, we have a cheese that only has four ingredients or so. But it's a real cheese. It has real protein. It has real you know nutrients. So we're really, really excited. And you have to have highly specialized cultures to do this. And this is something that we've been working on. So, I'm really excited about it, because this is how we can answer the need of all these people that are like, "I'm a locavore. I only eat organic. I only want you know, farm to table. I don't want that franken food. I don't don't give me processed food. It's not good, you know, sugar, too much sugar, too much yeah. processed, you know fats, et cetera.
1: So when do you think this will be available for sale? <laughs> this
0: is this new technology is going to take a, a year or two. So okay. it's not going to be, you know, I'm hoping fourth quarter 2021. We might have something that's close to it, but we're already getting so many learnings from this process that we might be able to tweak some of our current products using this new process.
1: It's super exciting. And
0: that'll roll out sooner.
1: Yeah. How has your role in the company evolved since you first started? Like What do you focus on now? And what was your involvement like, obviously, when you were first starting the business?
0: Sure. I mean, that. that's a really great question. And that's something that I think every entrepreneur needs to think about if you want to grow big. So when I first started, we had four employees and I was in the floor of the, our little, we had about a 4,000 square foot facility between warehouse production and offices. And I was right on in there with my hairnet on, you know, making cheese, scooping cheese, et cetera. Doing it all. <laughs> doing it all. And, you know, as we grew over time, I was less on the floor. I was overseeing things, teaching, but not actually producing. Sometimes I'd be producing, sometimes I'd be packing boxes, but definitely, you know, now we're about 150 employees and my role has changed again. So for a while I was very, very deep into operations, marketing, sales. We really didn't have an executive team for a long time. We were still, even though we kept growing and growing, we just had a scrappy team. So now we, you know, we sort of have, we have a fairly strong leadership team now, executive team. And I recently brought on a president to work under me. So I'm, I'm still the founder and CEO, but I have a very, very supportive president. And so he kind of keeps tabs on all the departments and coordinates them. And what that's allowed me to do is to go back and be the head of R and D again. Mm-hmm. I did have a VP of R and D, and what we found, to be perfectly honest, was that at some point, my vision and his vision didn't align as to how we evolve these products, and we had to do a reset. And that's something you know, at every step along the way, when you're a five million dollar company, your your needs are very different. I mean, I remember my first goal was getting to ten million. You know, getting to ten million was a huge goal for me, and I felt like people, and investors would say, when you get to ten million, you're going to have all these people calling you that you know, don't want to take the risk when you're only doing four or five million. And that was true. And then the people that help you get to 10 million are going to be different from the ones that get you to 25 million. And the people that get you to 25 million are going to be different from the people that get you to 50 million. And if they can get you to 50 million, they can probably help you get to 100 million. But we're no longer a, a tiny company. We're no longer a startup. And so we needed a serious team. So we've got some really serious people now. We're able to attract the kind of a level of talent that we couldn't initially either. So at this point, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around all over the place. but the other thing is, as you grow, you find that people's visions are different. You may outgrow some people, and at the same time, you bring on these professionals who have a very different idea of how things should be done. And if they don't align with your vision, ultimately, then they're not the right people to be in your business, yeah. and so at the end of the day, you know, I just had to take back R and D myself because I have a very specific vision of how I want to grow that because that's the foundation of our business. So at this point, you know, we're building out our R and D team. We're looking for more food scientists and cheese makers and so on. So if you're looking, <laughs> but now I'm able to focus because I have the president. I'm able to focus on that. And I'm able to focus on branding and marketing. And those are the two areas I want to focus on. I don't want to be worrying about co-packers and what's going on with operations and finance and all that stuff.
1: You have a team for that. So I've got somebody else doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question about when you hire the president, because that's a very important role and Mm -hmm. any entrepreneur giving up any type of control and having other mm-hmm. people help to run the business, it can, it can be hard. And like you said, your vision really does have to be aligned. How long did it take you to find the president? And can you share any advice or tips when you were looking sure. for these really important roles in your business on, on how to find those people and how to vet that they really are the right fit?
0: Sure. I hired the best recruiter I I could. I interviewed a whole bunch of recruiters in person. I met with them. And I hired someone who was the, absolutely the most expensive because I thought she was the best. And this recruiter actually flies around the country actually meeting the candidates and interviewing them. And I felt like she totally got my vision in a way that no one else did. You know, we've used a lot of recruiters and we've they've hired people that just weren't right for the company at all. And they were senior level people, but we had to let them go because they weren't right. I just didn't want to take that risk. I mean, first of all, it took me a long time. It took me like a year to figure out I really needed a president. I had fear about that role because I thought, what if they really want to usurp power from me and want to be the CEO and all of this stuff? And it took a lot of deep thinking and talking to a CEO coach, reading books about how founders can really grow their business by having like a number two person that really supports them. And you have to find that person that doesn't want to be on stage. You have to find that person that really wants to be behind the curtains making the show run. And there are people like that. And there are people, you know, like the president I have says to me, I'll make you recommendations of what I think needs to happen. But at the end of the day, it's your company, you're the founder, you're the CEO, and I'm here to support you. If you say you don't like my idea, you want to do it this way, I'm going to make that happen. And that's the kind of person you need to find. And it took a while. It took several months to find that person. And I don't think I could have found it without the right recruiter. I mean, you've got to find the right recruiter to begin with. Yeah, It starts there.
1: Any tips on finding the right recruiter?
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to meet the recruiters. You have to interview them. Take several hours to do that. You have to tell them who you really are. I think a lot of founders don't take that seriously, whether it's a recruiter or a VC, whether it's an investor, doesn't matter you know, it's like dating. You don't put on your best self. You put on the truth. You show them the truth of who you are and what you're looking for. And if you don't do that, you're going to find the wrong people.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think for women particularly, I think women always feel that the experts know better. So I should let them tell me what I need. And we shouldn't assume we know it all. And you got to know when to ask questions. But you got to be honest about this is what I'm like. And I will work best with this type of person, or I need this kind of support. You have to be honest with them and really show all your colors, and not try to behave like you're the perfect CEO because likely you aren't. I'm not, you know. That's why yeah. I'm a CEO coach.
1: Yep. None None of us are. So, speaking yeah. of a CEO coach, when did you realize that it might make sense for you to find a coach? We have one too, and I we love our okay. CEO coach. So, yeah. I
0: <laughs> it was about three years into the company, when maybe even a little bit before then, yeah, maybe like two and a half years into the company, I looked around one day, we had about 40 employees, and I had managers that argued with me, and things weren't going the way I wanted, and all of a sudden, I looked around, I thought, oh my God, what is this company? Anyway, whose company is it? Is it mine? Is it somebody else's? Everyone's making their own decisions. There was just like havoc everywhere. People are changing processes. I don't even know what's going on. And, you know, at first, my tendency was to blame this person or that person until I took a good look at myself and realized it was me. I hadn't really run the company the way I wanted and kept everyone on course. And it took me a long time. I still didn't do anything about it. I read some books, but, you know, I think we all want to deflect blame from ourselves if we can, especially when we're uncertain of who we are and our strengths. I mean, everyone does it, men and women. But I think women tend to doubt themselves more. And so while we realize that we don't have what it takes, sometimes we surround ourselves with the so-called experts that make things worse. And sometimes they're men and we're still not really directing because we're afraid of coming off as a biatch. And so we don't really direct. And so it's really hard for us to find that balance. So it was about a year later, I got into this massive argument with our plant manager who had a huge anger problem and people knew about it but we had a huge blow up and i almost walked out of the company i almost quit i was like mm-hmm. i can't control this anymore i don't know what i'm doing and i was about to call my investors and say i quit so our current director of operations who'd been with me since almost the beginning calmed me down talked me out of it and and i started reading a bunch of books and i thought you know i need help this is something i can't do on my own so i started looking around for a ceo coach and mm-hmm. and one of our board members happened to Uh, meet somebody. I interviewed a couple and I really liked her. And so she's been my coach ever since. Yeah. It's really helped a lot.
1: No, it just goes to show in a time Mm -hmm. of, you know, stress, when you were about to quit, you still were able to, you know, put the emotions aside and figure out how to problem solve to continue to move forward. And I think that is the true mark of an entrepreneur. You just keep going and you figure out how to make it better. Up next, how Miyoko's company navigated the realities of being an essential business during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entreprenistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entreprenistapodcast.com. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an entrepreneurista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search entrepreneuristas. We really wanted to create a community for entrepreneuristas to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed. And we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. So I want to talk a little bit about the past couple of months, obviously, with COVID really impacting the entire world starting back in February and March, I'd love to hear a little bit about what the impact has been on your business. And if you've had to pivot different areas of your business, do you have of your team working from home like what does that look like right now
0: yeah so you know we are an essential business so we never shut down but we made changes immediately the so-called non-essential workers in our business that is the people in the office um, started working from home immediately you know i think when you do something like that we have our own manufacturing right there in the facility it made the essential workers that were on the floor feel you know like it was not really entirely fair that they had to report to work and you know, everyone was scared. Everyone was freaking out at the time and no one really understood how things were being dealt with. And so we knew that we had to figure out a solution very soon. You know, at the time there wasn't much known about the virus. You know, you thought you could just touch a surface and contract the virus and that's been shown to be fairly unlikely. We're learning more and more it's, it's airborne and masks are the best preventative. But at the very beginning we started staring, you know, we were first First of all, the plant is one of the cleanest places you can be because it's being sanitized all the time. Um, we had a, an SQF, which is a third-party audit of our facility. We got a hundred recently, so it's a very, very clean plant. But you know, in the break room, the offices, etc., we started cleaning doorknobs and every surfaces every hour, sanitizing everything, just being extra vigilant. The biggest impact was really to scheduling because we started to separate the shifts. They used to overlap because you have a big piece of equipment that's running, a whole line that's running. It's multiple pieces of equipment that all work together. You have to run it to get the optimal efficiency. You know, We run these these lines 16 hours a day. And if you shut down the line, you have to start it up again. And you lose, if you shut it down for 30 minutes, you lose basically an hour and a half or so in having to get the machine back up and running and all of this. But in order to keep group. Safe. We wanted to make sure that there wasn't crossover between our staff to minimize that as much as possible. So we started shutting the lines down and leaving a 30 minute break between all of the shifts. We have three shifts. We operate 24 hours a day, six days a week. And all of a sudden, we took a hit to our productivity by about 15%. At a time when, because of COVID, our sales just went through the roof, increasing demand, all of a sudden, we've got decreased capacity. So that was not good because when you can't meet the orders, they don't, you know, all of a sudden we went from whatever 96% fill rate, meaning the percentage of the orders that you're filling, or 98% fill rate to all of a sudden we're down to 80% fill rate or so. And of course, that makes retailers and distributors unhappy because they, they want more and you can't produce more. Yeah. We do have some CapEx improvements we're making actually over the next month. We're spending quite a chunk of change and upgrading our lines so that we can we have some equipment that are shared by two different lines. And so we're separating them so we can actually increase capacity per line by 50% or so. So we're going to be able to recoup some of this. But that's been a huge challenge, you know, that and making sure that everyone is safe. And then you know we're what do people do when they're not at work? It's very, very scary. In terms of the offices, we started bringing some people back because we were finding there was, even though I started these Zoom calls every single morning. So all staff, we get on Zoom, we talk, blah, 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 trying to, trying to create that semblance of, of togetherness. We found that some things, I don't know, people say, oh, working remote is great, but we found that it wasn't exactly true. There's some things that just get done better when you're in a team. Yeah. And so we started bringing some people back sort of in rotation.
1: Did people want to come back? Did you find oh like- Oh my God,
0: a lot yeah. of people wanted, they were like, they couldn't wait to come back. They hated working from home. Now we do have some employees that are like, you know, they're totally in their groove at home. They don't want to come back, but that's the minority. Most people love being together because that's, yeah. you know, you're on lockdown. You're not seeing anybody else. Your team members are your family members in some ways. Yep. So, if people wanted to come back, um, people missed being at work. We also have like a lunch program or a meal program. So, we have a great kitchen staff and we have organic vegan meals all day long. There's so much food to eat. Everyone, you know, people joke about quarantine 15, but they also (laughs) joke about, I can't remember the Miyoko's. Ten or something like that. When they start working, up, <laughs> they start working. Everyone eats all day long, and so they all gain ten pounds, even though it's healthy, organic, vegan food. But still, there's just so much of it, and you, it's just like
1: anyway. I feel like there's been yeah. so many lessons learned over the past couple of months. I feel like the last four yeah. months seems like two years. Where yeah, no, oh my running God, a absolutely. business.
0: Yeah, well, we're really lucky because of COVID. Where there's a twenty thousand square foot office next door. And they they decided not to return. So we're actually moving in August first. So we're gonna be expanding. They're leaving the cubicles and the cubicles are all like ten by ten. So everyone's gonna we're gonna be able to socially distance and we can bring everybody back. So we're gonna be gaining another twenty thousand square feet. So we're really excited about that.
1: Yeah. And we're gonna move. Yeah. Definitely fortunate to be in the business Mm -hmm. that you're in, especially during this time and to have that. And that's, that's really wonderful. Can you share any other lessons learned over the past couple of months or any advice to other entrepreneurs who are trying to get through this time, figuring out their business?
0: Yeah, I think we're all trying to figure it out. We had an offsite yesterday and we're trying to figure out because the way you got a food company, CPG company off the ground before was through trade shows and events and actually connecting with buyers. You can't see buyers anymore. You can't do tastings like I would fly to Kroger or Target and I would make a grilled cheese sandwich and give it to the, the buyer and they would taste it in front of me. Can't do any of that stuff anymore. So you're doing everything through Zoom. You're doing everything through mail. And if you're a company like us that's been around for a few years, you know we still have the opportunity to present to buyers. But if you're if you're just trying to get off the ground, trying to get that buyer meeting is really, really hard now. And so I think this is why we have to turn more to digital and figure out how to utilize, how to disrupt social media, how to tell your story better on digital platforms than ever and reach people that way and build traction. Because Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to get your business off the ground. I'm assuming I'm speaking to people that are trying to get their business off the ground or earlier stage. Yes. You know, someone who's in. 20,000 stores. So
1: yes, no, absolutely. I mean, one of our clients at social is a CPG brand. And mm-hmm. obviously during this time, social has never been, it's always been important, but it's never been more important than it is right now because mm-hmm. it's really the only way to reach people and figuring out these creative strategies to like, if you're launching, when you launch your new products, how are you gonna have people taste it? As you mentioned before, you mm-hmm. have to figure out these tasting or gifting programs to get people really excited to try these new things, especially if they're if they're not going out. So right, right. Couldn't agree with you more. So I have to ask you, what are some of your favorite vegan recipes? Oh, my favorite, you're talking about my recipes or
0: just in general.
1: Well, how about both? So your recipes oh, and then in general.
0: That's not a fair question. I'm <laughs> sorry.
1: I mean, like, I hate that's like the one question when
0: people say. If you had to go to a desert island and you could only take, I mean, because you know, I'm just one of these people that just loves so many different things. Yeah. Since I was a a young person, I've just explored so many different cuisines and flavors and and there's so many things that I just it's whatever I have in in front of me, I guess. But it's I like dishes where the flavors are pure Mm -hmm. and clean and simple and not, you know, just like a great plate of really perfectly cooked al dente pasta from homemade pasta with some perfectly made just a very simple pomodoro sauce made from ripened tomatoes and olive oil, a little basilico. And I would be happy with eating nothing but that, for example. Or it could be something as simple as ochazuke, which is a Japanese rice dish. It's just rice with tea poured over it and some wakame and a few other condiments. And that is so satisfying. Or it could just be a simple bowl of really expertly done miso soup.
1: That sounds delicious. Or it could be a great
0: seitan steak or mushrooms or something. But I really do like simplicity in food. I really like to be able to taste the ingredients or the the artistry behind something, whether it's the best pasta or the best rice or just some Romanesco cauliflower—that's so sweet that it needs nothing mm. more than just steaming with a little bit of salt and sprinkling of olive oil—and I can just eat the plate of something like that. So, really, it's it's all about quality and artistry, in my opinion.
1: Are some of those mentioned in your cookbook? Oh, there's there's a lot of that in my cookbook. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> I have so... a new cookbook coming out next year.
1: Oh, see, we're going oh, to get to that. God. All the new things that are happening. So, so what yeah. is next for you?
0: Yeah, so the book that's coming out next year, same publisher as the Homemade Vegan Pantry, it's called Vegan Meat, and it's about how to use all the vegan meats that are available today, as well as how to a big chapter on DIY meat, everything from mushrooms to legumes to wheat. That's super so exciting. So that's what's uh, that's what's coming out next year.
1: Yeah. And, do you know um, what, what the date is or what the anticipated date of the, the book launch? I don't know. I'd
0: have to, you know, it's random house, 10 speed, random house, and they're on a long schedule. Yes. We've already done the photo shoot. I didn't have anything to do with it. I got to watch the photographer and food stylist on zoom. I <laughs> oh uh, saw the photos. That was pretty, that was pretty incredible. So yeah, I think it's just being formatted now. And then it goes to the printer and it comes out sometime they do their thing. It'll come oh. out sometime next spring.
1: You'll definitely have to keep us posted because we will share it with our entrepreneur yeah. audience. When, when that goes live, what would you say you're most grateful for each day?
0: Gosh, everything. I mean, that, that's like, once again, what do I like to eat? I have a really good life and because it, I've struggled in the past before, and have been through periods where I didn't know I was going to pay my rent and, you know, I lived in places that, where I didn't enjoy the environment. It wasn't beautiful or whatever. I am so grateful for everything. I mean, the virtual screen is what I see every single day. Those are the animals from Rancho Compasión, the farmed animal sanctuary that I was fortunate enough to be able to co-found with my husband five years ago. We live not only in a beautiful area, I've been fortunate enough to start this company that I thought would definitely fail and has now become one of the leading brands in the country. I am surrounded by a wonderful team at work that is just as passionate as I am to change the food system. Rancho Compassion has two fantastic, amazing full-time staff people and uh, just um, hordes and hordes of passionate volunteers. Every day, I get to see these amazing animals that were taken out of the food system and get to express themselves as they want in a beautiful mm-hmm. setting. I've got wonderful dogs. I've got wonderful cats. I've got a wonderful family. I don't know. Like, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to not just enjoy my life, but to promote the vegan mission and to tra- help transform the world to a more sustainable, compassionate place for all living beings.
1: That's absolutely wonderful. And you've made such a difference in so many people's lives and homes because of the, the business that you've created. So congratulations on everything that you accomplished. I have two more important questions for you. Okay. So the first is, what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? An entrepreneurista
0: means finding a problem, having an idea, and not being able to wait to solve it and jumping in there and doing it. It is really about risk-taking, but it really is a journey of learning about yourself and gaining confidence and polishing that inner being that is strong, bold, proud, and can bring solutions to the world.
1: Yeah, that is definitely you from everything that you've just shared in your journey. And my final question is, where can everyone find you, follow you, and buy all of your incredible products?
0: Sure. Our products are sold in about 20,000 stores throughout the United States and Canada. So
1: whether it's a Whole Foods or a
0: Sprouts or a Kroger or a Target or Walmart, there's a store probably near you that carries our products, all the independent natural food retailers and lots of specialty stores. Our website is miyokos.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. We're on social. I think the handle is Miyoko's Creamery. You can follow me directly. I'm not super active on social media, but people follow me anyway. It's just Miyoko Shinner, my name, M-I-Y-O-K-O-S-C-H-I-N-N-E-R, and I'm mostly on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, I do have one thing, which is that uh, since COVID, one of the things that we did was we started something called Miyoko's Home Comforts. And for the first two months, we had a daily Facebook Live cooking show. That I do in my kitchen at home. And we did it every single day for two months. Now we're only doing it twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. And it's at 4 p.m. PT, 7 p.m. ET. It's me cooking in the kitchen. And on Fridays, we have happy hour. And I usually have a guest. Right now, we're spotlighting Black entrepreneurs. Today, I've got a female Black entrepreneur of Kube Nice Cream. She's making a coconut ice cream. She's a startup. She's fantastic. And we talk about all kinds of issues, not just about the products themselves or their journey. And we talk about their journey. Of course, we all talk about about food injustice and all sorts of things, racial injustice, all kinds of things. So tune in, it's Facebook Live on the Miyoko's channel, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, we post on both. And then we upload it to YouTube later, but it happens twice a week. And, And this is really how we try to bring sort of authenticity to the brand to show that, you know, when we first started, people were like, Miyoko is a real person? You know, you'll see me bumbling around the kitchen. It's kind of fun, check it out.
1: I love it. What a great concept to start during this time. So I will be tuning in later today. I can't wait to watch it. Miyoko, thank you so much for joining me. I loved learning all about your journey and your story. So you guys be sure to follow Miyoko's Creamery all over social for all of the latest updates. So thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had.
0: Thank you, Stephanie.
1: Bye-bye.